station stop is Princeton Junction. Watch the Over the mountain and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. We have just arrived in Princeton, New Jersey which has all of these wonderfully gothic buildings around us. And we are on our way to see Professor Angus Deaton and to talk to him about inequality and how you measure inequality. Thank you. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? Ronald Reagan asked that during a debate against then-President Jimmy Carter in 1980. Today, many would answer his question with a resounding no. They might also add that, in fact, they haven't been better off since 1980. Inequality has been on the rise for the past several decades. Oxfam, a nonprofit whose mission is to fight poverty, released a report last year noting that 82% of the wealth generated in 2017 went to the richest 1% of the global population while 3.7 billion people who make up the poorest half of the world saw no increase in their wealth. And just last month, the group reported that the world's 26 richest people own as much wealth as the bottom 3.8 billion, whose own wealth declined by 11% in 2018. What accounts for this growing disparity? I had um, broiled um, crocodile tails for breakfast. So did I. (laughs) It's just my my grandson is into crocodiles. And my daughter just sent me this picture as she came, which is about a crocodile, which has, I think, its baby in its mouth. Or a plastic baby, I'm not sure. Oh, it has a croc. It has one of those croc shoes. Oh, that's what it is. Yes. Of course. Carrie, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> that's wonderful. That's fabulous. Thank you. You're welcome. You made my day. Today's guest, Angus Deaton, professor of economics and international affairs emeritus at Princeton University, won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2015 for his work on inequality and poverty. He notes that one of the problems is the benchmarks we use to measure success instead of how people are doing, what they're consuming, and how they're living. I talk with Professor Deaton about these challenges at his home in Princeton, New Jersey. Professor Deaton, it's good to be here with you. Delighted to be here. Um, so there's a lot of focus on inequality today. We're constantly hearing about it in the headlines. Um, we're hearing about stagnant worker wages. We're hearing about the tax breaks for the wealthy. Inequality isn't something new. It's we, We've seen wide gaps between the rich and the poor um, previously. Could you put inequality into context for us I could try. Um, it's a enormous issue um, with many, many dimensions, and people think about it in different ways. And let me talk a little bit about income inequality, which is what you were talking about. Um, but maybe mention some of the other forms of inequality, which I think are very important too. So it's true that there's been a big gap always, forever, except maybe in hunter-gatherer societies, which was a very long time ago. Um, Many people regard that important because, you know, we spent most of our evolutionary history as hunter-gatherers. And so one important claim is that we actually evolved to be equal. And so why people get so upset about inequality is partly because there's an evolved dislike of it. 
Um, but coming to more modern times, there's been very high inequality before. And certainly um, one of the comparisons that's made today often is with the Gilded Age at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. And many measures of inequality are similar now to what they were then. So while it's true there's always been inequality, there's a lot more inequality now than there was in mid-century um, and probably about the same as there was at the end of the last um, century. Um, I have my own views as to why people get upset about inequality. And for me, what really bothers me, and I think it bothers a lot of other people, is unfairness as being more important than inequality. And unfairness is living in a society, if you like, that's rigged. I mean, I wouldn't use that word. I just did. Um, I wouldn't use that word in my own writing. But it's a sense in which these gains are ill-gotten to some extent. And I think many of the gains that are ill-gotten are coming by what economists like to call rent-seeking, um, meaning you know, they're petitioning the government or finding illegitimate ways of getting rich on the back of ordinary people. And so people worry about monopoly. Um, they worry about monopsony, which is when there's a limited number of buyers of labor. Um, they worry about patents. Um, which seem to be forever extending, very good at making a few people very rich on the backs of everybody else. Um, they worry a lot about pharma companies, for instance, which seem to be charging exorbitant prices, um, making people struggle um, while executives make a huge amount of money. It's true of the whole healthcare sector to some extent. And of course, people are really worried about the banks and the bankers. So, you know, the feeling they caused the financial crisis. And they made a lot of money, and they've never had to give that money back. Um, and yet a lot of people have really suffered. So it's that sense that we're living in a world in which we're almost like farm animals that are there to be fleeced um, by the rich and famous, um, or at least by the rich, um, that I think bothers people, and they feel that's out of control. So associated with that is the feel that the very rich, the tippy top 1% or 1% of 1% or whatever, really do have a little much, too much control over government. Um, and the associated feeling that ordinary people have been sort of excluded from that process. So I think people worry about that. But it's not just money. Um, it's, if you think of the health stuff that we'll talk about a bit later maybe, that Anne and I, and Case and I have been working on, is, you know, the people who are dying are people without a BA. And people with a BA are doing just fine, thank you. And people whose marriages are collapsing are people without a BA. So, you know, even in marriage, there's a huge amount of inequality. In education, there's a huge amount of inequality. So it, it really extends to lots of aspects of people's lives that people care about. I want to pick up on this point that you talked about with monopolies and the bankers and a lot of these people becoming very wealthy at the expense of a lot of people throughout the world. Um, surely that did not happen overnight. It is something that has gradually happened. How have we allowed it to happen? Well, it, you could argue that there's always pressure in that direction um, because everybody would like to be wealthy Everybody would like to be rich. And one of the things that tends to happen is when you have a lot of money, you can use that money to get even richer. 
you know, there's this enormous lobbying industry in Washington, D.C., for example. And when I talk about that, many people say, well, you know, the, the right to petition government is part of our constitution, I guess. You have to have that. And so it's always been there, but it's not always been there. It's always been there in some form, but the extent of it is enormous compared. I was reading a book the other day which said that when um, Ralph Nader, you know, who was a Princeton student here and uh, been very active in Princeton all through his life, um, when Ralph Nader went after General Motors in the 60s and early 70s with his book Unsafe at Any what was it, Unsafe at Any Speed? Or yeah, I'm I, not sure what the title is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whipped up this frenzy of people against corporate America and against General Motors and so on. General Motors did not have a single lobbyist in Washington at that time. So, you know, he sort of poked the monster, <laughs> and the monster has grown since then. So the amount of lobbying that modern lobbying in Washington is relatively new. And it's something, one of these many things that's gotten much worse since 1970 or so. And where that balance of power has really shifted. Now, lobbyists don't always get what they want. I mean, in many cases, lobbyists on one side are pitted against lobbyists on the other side. But if you don't have a lobbyist, you're not even at the table. And I think for most working people, they have that space has been taken up by the lobbyists, so there's very little left for them. That seems to be very unique to the United States. It's certainly all of the corporate money and the lobbying money. Yeah, here I'm puzzled in this about that. I, I don't know why. It seems to be true. There's certainly influence in all countries everywhere. But when I talk to my friends in Britain, and I ask, you know, how long would it get take to get a rule change like that that just got passed here? They say, well, maybe 50 years. You know, it would just take a long time um, to bring the pressure and pay the money and do that thing. Um, I want to move over to the work that you have um, been doing for the past several decades, um, and it has to do with how we measure economic well-being. And you've talked about how the tool, those tools that that we normally hear about, such as GDP, and we certainly hear about the stock market and the Dow Jones, um, they're not actually a good reflection of how society is doing. Um, what should we be measuring instead? Well, let me, I can't resist starting with a few words about the stock market. Um, The stock market, if it works perfectly, which it doesn't always, is supposed to be the value of future profits, and the sort of discounted present value of all future profits. So it's an indicator of profits. It's not an indicator of well-being. Um, and if GDP is divided into sort of profits and wages, then, you know, if someone invents something and profits are going to go up in the future, that sets up the stock market. But so if they reduce wages and make a big chunk of the population worse off, that's going to increase the stock market too. So a lot of the time it's just a perverse indicator. And I doubt that Mr. Trump understands what I've just said. But um, his fascination and commitment to the stock market is very much of a piece with him favoring corporations over workers, which is what seems to go on a lot of the time. GDP, I mean, has some claims to being an aggregate measure of welfare because it takes what workers get and what profits get and adds them together. 
but it's an aggregate measure, which is a big problem. Um, so it tells you nothing about who's getting what. So, you know, if one person gets everything in GDP, the same GDP is when everybody gets the same. So GDP has some claims, a better claim to being some measure of how we're all doing because it has what the capitalists get and what the workers get in it. But it's an aggregate, so it doesn't tell you about anything about who's getting what. So it's completely impervious to one person having everything and everything being equally distributed. So you can look at distribution and, you know, um, one of the major intellectual efforts um, by Piketty and his co-workers, for instance, has been to um, start building what they call distributional national accounts, which is GDP split up so that when you get the accounts, it says who got which bit of it. Was it the very top? Was it capital? Was it labor? Whatever. Which industries and so on. And I think GD um, statistical offices around the world are picking that up, which is a very good thing. It's very difficult, though. I want to also go beyond that. I think economists have really, some ways, got this very wrong, which is they equate well-being with material well-being, you know? And I think that's actually been responsible for a lot of the bad things that have happened. You know, you see it playing out in Brexit in Britain today, that the people who want to be you know, separated from Europe, are, they don't care about the material well-being or what they lose from it. They care about something else. And that's something else, you know, they they don't want to trade it in for money, for example. You know, the, the work that Anne Case and I have been doing on deaths, you know, you can't reduce death or life to money. And, you know, the people who've been dying are people whose lives have come apart. And they've not just come apart because they don't have money anymore. They've come apart because their communities are gone. The cities in which they worked are gone. The meaning in their life has been um, greatly um, reduced. Their marriages are coming apart. And these are the things I think that matter to people much more than money. I mean, if you don't have any money, you have a real problem. But, you know, most of us, it's our social relationships that really count. Um, for most Americans, church is a very important part of their lives. There's just a huge amount of stuff there that's not captured in GDP um, at all. So we need um, what we call a dashboard of indicators. Um, so life expectancy is an obvious um, one, but you know a lot of us have become interested in measuring well-being directly using happiness measures. And I used to think that those were really silly things. I mean, how much sillier could you be than ask people how happy they are and then pay any attention to what they said? Um, but it turns out that those have their uses and they pick up a lot of stuff that GDP and income measures don't necessarily pick up. So I think one of the exciting things about economics today is that it is broadening out and taking these other aspects of life much more serious. I've always been sort of a disciple of Amartya Sen, and he's always pushed that in a really big way. I was actually wondering, if Anne isn't busy, maybe it would be good to have her come and join on that. I want to pick up on the point that you mentioned about um, deaths of despair. 
um, and you and Princeton economist Ann Case, who is also with us now. That's the topic of the next book that you are co-writing, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism, to be published by Princeton University Press in 2020. Can you expand on what we can expect from the book and what solutions you offer? Yeah, uh, back in 2017, we wrote a paper for the Brookings um, uh, paper series. And the book starts by taking a deeper dive into a lot of the issues that we looked at there, which were the fact that suicide, drug overdose, or death from alcoholism is all a form of suicide. And it all seems to be wrapped up in pain. Um, and it seems to coincide with the fact that among white working class in America, uh, there's been a real disintegration of, of marriage, of connection to the labor force, of social connection. And we're trying to see if we can put those pieces together and um, figure out where we might be able to turn the rudder and um, and change huh. that a bit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we one of the things that I think has been very hard for people is the loss of community and jobs. Um, and one of the things we're pushing is it's too simple to tell us the story of globalization, of trade, um, and of technical automation and so on. Because there's trade and automation in Germany and England and other places too. And they're just not seeing this death of despair, nor are they seeing a 50-year stagnation or actually decline in real wages for people without a BA. And so the sort of back end of the book, which is about trying to tie this to the what's going on in the economy and the forces that are helping keep down people's wages and that have made this experience of globalization and automation, which would have been tough anyway, into something that's been much, much harder on people than it should have been. And we think that's to do with this um, switch of power away from labor towards capital. And it's connected with income distribution because the forces that are doing that are also causing income inequality to rise at the same time. Can I pick up on that? Um, because you mentioned how there's automation going on in Germany and the situation is so different. Um, so that leads me to believe that, and as you point out, this is not just about globalization and it's not just about economics. How does healthcare factor into this? Well, we think uh, the, the healthcare system in America, which is the most expensive in the world, and that doesn't provide the sort of results that we're seeing for Europe. Our life expectancy is low in comparison to other rich countries, and our life expectancy has fallen for the third year in a row, which hasn't happened since uh, the great uh, since the flu epidemic of 1918. Um, but we think that the healthcare industry is part of the problem here, that um, through um, mergers of hospitals, hospitals are able to raise the prices that they charge, that through lobbying of Congress, um, uh, the pharmaceutical companies can keep drug prices high. Um, and the opioid crisis started as a prescription opioid crisis 
So we have iatrogenic medicine in part responsible for this as well. I mean, we actually, in the book, we tell the story of the opium wars in China in the 19th century, and, you know, how there was this sense in which um, when the opium traders were losing their trade, the British sent in the gunboats to make sure they could addict as many Chinese as possible, essentially. And, you know, the money is always spoken louder than the... And those opium dealers were honored an enormous extent. One of them became governor of the Bank of England. Um, one of them bought most of the north of Scotland and exported the people to Canada. And so, you know, there's been, as there has been with the Sacklers now, in that these people, the Sackler name is on all these public buildings. At the same time, their children, nephews at least, um, are peddling these drugs. So the healthcare is really two things. One is it's sort of the opioids are the most egregious part of it in that essentially these companies have been allowed to kill people to get rich. Um, and the epidemic is in a secondary phase now, which is beyond prescriptions, but the pharmaceutical company started it. But probably even more important, if that's possible, is, you know, if you reduced our healthcare expenditure as a share of GDP to Switzerland's, which is not very ambitious because Switzerland is the second highest in the world, that would save a trillion dollars a year. And a trillion dollars a year is more than $8,000 per family. So you could reverse all that wage stagnation. You could reverse all of that by giving people higher wages, lower taxes. There's a huge amount of money just being, I was going to say poured down the drain, but as our late colleague Uwe Reinhardt used to like to say, you should always remember that waste and abuse is someone's income, right? And so the waste and abuse is actually upward redistribution. But to go back to, the, for example, what happens in Europe, um, if you become ill, you don't have to worry that it's going to bankrupt you. And one of the really important roles that um, having a state-provided health insurance buys you is that you don't have to worry that financially you're going to be ruined by a very serious illness. And in the U.S., uh, we can't guarantee, guarantee people that that's the case. The unfortunate commingling of business with health insurance that happened in the U.S. is bad for business and it's bad for health care. Thank you, Professor. I, I think we're almost done. I'm going to talk about hope a little bit. Thanks, Anne. Oh, yeah. good. Talk yeah. about hope. At the end of last year, you wrote that in Trump's America, the gradual change in institutions is currently going in the wrong direction. You speak about the judiciary's increasingly conservative bias with judges who are more likely to rule in favor of corporate interests and against labor. What, if anything, can be done to reverse this trend? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. And I, I don't think it's Trump, incidentally. I mean, much as I'd like to pin it on Trump, I think this is a long-term change in the way the legal system has moved. And a lot of it is actually, some of it at least can be traced back to Chicago economics and this sense within the legal system of emphasizing efficiency rather than anything else, especially distribution. 
and that's pure Chicago, or at least it's very much one of Chicago's very strong um, positions. And that's Milton Friedman, isn't it? Well, it's Milton Friedman, but through a, a guy called Aaron Director, who was um, Friedman's brother-in-law, who was a great teacher and a huge influencer, but didn't write very much himself. And then through Richard Posner. Okay. Um, and so that's really been very much pushed, and it was funded by a bunch of foundations, in particular the Olin Foundation um, did a lot of work to sort of bring, and then that got into, what is it called, the... Um, this big thing in Washington that vets judges. Um, the Federalist the Society? The Federalist Society and so on. is a sort of outcropping um, of that. But there's this feeling that all these, a lot of these cases should be judged basically on the total amount of um, economic stuff they're generating, just purely on efficiency growth, which takes us back to what we were talking about before. The fairness plays no role in this. I mean, it's just uh, you decide it based on the total amount. So, for instance, a very good example, I think, would be unions. So there's been a whole spate of sort of anti-union rulings. Um, Unions are almost certainly inefficient in that, you know, there'd be more GDP if unions got out of the way. It would just all go to one set of people. And so the fact that the law more and more moves towards adjudicating against unions and towards efficiency um, has been, I think, a big part of that. The weaponization of the First Amendment, which people talk about, I think has been a big issue um, here too, that allowing um, corporations to speak as persons and spend an unlimited amount of money on free speech I mean, is very part of that too. So that really, I think, has been a long-run trend. I think, you know... This is self-serving, but if you say, what can we do about it? Well, one of the things you can do is write about it, you know, and try to persuade people. And you guys are doing a good job on here, too. So, you know, just try to get the word out. So the understanding that this is really um, a problem and that, you know, many of us, I grew up in Britain until, you know, the mid 80s and unions were a huge problem and unions were often a huge problem and still are sometimes a huge problem here. And I don't think we can bring back unions in the form in which we had them, but we need something that plays that role. So one, one thing that people have talked about, for instance, is having a, um, a lobby in Washington that replaces what unions used to do, a publicly funded lobby that represents the public interest, the public interest lobby for instance, that would have to be financed by government. And you wouldn't want to shut down the lobbies that are there. It's just that you have another lobby that's representing these people who are currently not being represented because the unions are being completely swamped in Washington by the um, the companies, for instance. So just having that voice in Washington, I think, would really help a lot. Um, and, you know, if we could stop <laughs> these people plundering stuff, um, that would really help too. So my final question to you is, what gives you hope? Well, I think I wrote at the end of The Great Escape um, this idea that, you know, the world really is a lot better place than it was 250 (laughs) years ago. And if you ask ourselves how we got there, we certainly didn't get there smoothly. Um, You know, there are many, many horrible things, and some of them not so far off. I mean, the great wars in the 20th century, you know, the great leap forward in China that killed 30 
million people. Um, you know what happened in Russia. Um, there are great catastrophes, and there always will be, I think. So we can get things really wrong, but the you know the, the dips have always been less bad than the recovery somehow. And so you have to ask yourself what that is. And, and for me, I think what it is is that people want to have better lives than they have. And that, that's a very powerful force for hope and for good. And that it often will take time and there'll be setbacks. But, um, and you know, of course, before 250 years ago, People wanted a better life too, but they didn't have any means for doing that. And so the Enlightenment really is a hinge here. You know, Kant told people to use reason to make themselves better off. And you know, that's what's been happening for the last 250 years. And it doesn't work every time. And there are negative forces too, but I think it's some reason for hope. It's not going to go away. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Angus Deaton professor of economics and international affairs emeritus at Princeton University and the winner of the 2015 Nobel Prize in Economics. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast. Subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrasli. PS Podcast is produced and edited by Kasher Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunham.